Okay. Well, I appreciate you, Greg, and all those that serve with him in leading us in worship. And thank you, young men that already took up the offering that uh, Greg didn't uh, that Greg didn't catch. I'm so grateful that you all are here this morning. I think for the most of us, we woke up in a warm bed. Our bellies are full. If clothes on our backs, we are blessed people. Amen. I know sometimes when it gets a little chilly outside, we can look for excuses or reasons. I realize that right now, there's a lot of people that are connected to this church or usually here on Sunday mornings and are not here because of sickness. And maybe you just in the last month have dealt with sickness, and I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm just saying that gratefully, um, we are able to persevere and overcome, and uh, we have an opportunity to come and worship God and be grateful for what God has done for us today. We are going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning, so hopefully when you came in, you got one of those bulletins. On the back of that bulletin will be some notes if you want to follow along um, as we walk through this text this morning. And so Acts chapter 4 is we're going to be at in a few moments. Um, so I hope that you will avail yourself of the notes and also find your place, whether you open a Bible or turn it on, but you'll find yourself there in Acts chapter 4. It's been quite a few years ago, but... Back in high school, I was on the football bus, and we were headed down to Heritage Hall to play a scrimmage or a game. I think it was a scrimmage, but we got off there around Penn and Memorial, and some of you may not be familiar with that area, but uh, down in that area, there is a lot of panhandling. There's a lot of people that are sitting on the side of the road with a sign or with a cup or with something that are asking for the motorist to stop and to give them money. And so I'm on the high school football bus, and we are headed down to Heritage Hall right there at that intersection. And there's a, a man, an individual that is sitting there that has got the trail beaten and he's got the sign out there and he's got the collection point and he's wanting some money. So you can imagine what a football bus does and a bunch of young men on a football bus. There's one man that takes a $20 bill. His name is Ty Hull and some of you may, this may register with some of you, but so Ty takes a $20 bill and he wads this $20 bill up real nice and tight and he throws it out the football bus window towards the man that's asking for money. He falls a little short. The $20 bill all wadded up lands right there at the curb about 20 feet from where the man was standing. Well, the man didn't realize that it was a $20 bill. I don't know. I, I didn't talk to him. He may assume that he was throwing trash, may assume that he was trying to insult him. I don't know. But the man that was asking for money saw Ty throw it out the window, saw it land about 20 feet from him right there at the curb and ignored it and kept looking for other people to give him money. Well, as we're sitting there at the stoplight, Ty starts to try to communicate out the window, hey, that's money, get the money, pick the money up, I just gave you money. And the more he tried to explain, the more the man just ignored him and wouldn't pay attention. The light turns green, the bus starts to move forward, and now Ty is incredulous because, hey, there's a $20 bill wadded up right there on the side of the road, and the guy doesn't realize it, and he's like, no, stop the bus, I want to get up. He's going through all these motions, and the coaches don't know what's going on, and we end up pulling off, and there was all kinds of a ruckus on the bus because he had just taken $20 and thrown it out the window. What really was going on there was there was a breakdown in communication. There was a breakdown in the message. Ty was trying to communicate to the man, I am giving you money, but the man wasn't receiving the message and the man didn't understand what Ty was trying to do. There was a breakdown or a disconnect in the message that he was trying to deliver. And much in the same way today in the church, there's a breakdown in our message. There can be a disconnect in our message for what the church is trying to say, what Christianity is trying to say versus what the world is hearing or what the world is listening to. 
one of my emphasis or one of the things that God has really impressed in my heart coming into this new year is that there needs to be an emphasis. There needs to be a concentration on our view of God, our view of man, and our view of sin. Because far too much, the church has become lax. The church has become lazy in our Christianity. We start to let our view of God sway. We let, start to let our view of man become too enlarged. And we let, start to let our view of sin become so liberal or so lackadaisical that there is no longer sin or right and wrong. It's all up to what you want and what you think and how you feel about the situation. And it can be very easy that it becomes a disconnect in our message. And no longer are we preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, righteousness, heaven, and hell. But we start to teach something or say something that is more palatable and more appealing and is more pleasant for all people involved. And there becomes a disconnect. Because the church starts to look around at the world and saying, why aren't you coming to the church? And the world starts saying, why do I need to come to church? I live just like you and I don't go to church. Why do I need to go to church? And the disconnect begins because we have failed to tell and to show and to live the message Christ has given us. So I want to look at this disconnect this morning in a scriptural example, a biblical passage, if you will, out of Acts chapter 4. Because as we come into this story, as we come into this narrative in Acts chapter 4, we see a disconnect already on the scene. There was an established Jewish tradition, the established Jewish lineage, the established Jewish religion, all right there, already in place. When Jesus is born and Jesus comes upon the scene, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he starts to say, yeah, you know what? The Jews have been doing this, but I'm telling you, I am beginning something new. I am beginning something fresh. And so there is this large disconnect because before what the, all the rabbis and all of the synagogues and all those Jewish leaders said, this is what it means to be right before God. And now we have Jesus coming on the scene and Jesus is saying, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of your faith. It's a matter of your faithfulness to me. It's not a matter of the rules and the regulations. It's a matter of who I am to you. And there becomes a disconnect between what the church is saying at the church at that time, the Jewish church and Jesus. Well, as we know the story, Jesus is crucified, buried in a tomb. Three days later, he rises from the grave. Acts chapter 1 begins with him ascending back to the right hand of the Father. So in Acts chapter 2, the disciples that are left here on this earth and the church that Jesus had started is there saying, what do we do now? And they did the only thing they knew to do, and that was to follow Jesus's teaching. So you get in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> then you have the Sermon of Pentecost. You have the coming of the Holy Spirit. People are all wondering what is going on. Peter gets up and he preaches and he says, this is because of Jesus and you believe in Jesus and there is salvation in Jesus. And then you fast forward and Peter and James are going in. Peter and John, I'm sorry, we're going into the synagogue, into the temple. There in Acts chapter three, Peter heals the lame man. People start wondering, how did they do this? What power did they have to do this? Why are they doing this? Then again, in Acts chapter three, Peter gets up and he preaches there in Solomon's portico and he pronounces and he proclaims Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. And you get there in Acts chapter four and verse one. And it says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what they do? They arrested them. 
and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word and believed the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here's where the story continues. It says on verse 5, On the next day the rulers and elders with the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family, when they had set them in the midst, and they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? So the scene and the setting that we come into is that there is a whole group of religious leaders, of established religious leaders, and they're looking at these disciples and they're going, what gives? You see, there's a disconnect in what the disciples are saying and what the Jewish leaders are saying. There's a disconnect in what Jesus had taught and what Jewish tradition held to. There was a big disconnect in the message. There was a disconnect in what they were doing. And so Peter has a chance to explain the disconnect. And I say it in a disconnect, but maybe I should be using the word difference. Peter has a chance to explain the difference between him and the Jewish religious leaders of the day. This is an opportunity for you and I in this day and time we're living in. With so much darkness around us, there's an opportunity for you and I to be ready to explain the difference in our lives. You see, Scripture is clear that there should be a difference in us when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. There should be a difference in who we are because of Jesus. And we need to be able to give an answer of why we are different than the rest of the world around us. And you may say, well, Spence, that's not really me. I've never been asked that before. Maybe that's the problem. Nobody sees a difference in us. Nobody sees a difference in our lives. So Peter's going to come in here into this text. It says in verse 8 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to go in there and he's going to talk about, I put there in your notes, four truths. He's going to really explain to them that, hey, there's, there's some things that have happened in my life. There's some things that I now believe that has made all the difference. This is the things that are making me different. These are the things that have changed me. And I think by an extension, he says, this is what, this is what we need in the world today. So he tells them there in verse 8. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done by a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want to take the few moments that I have this morning and just back you up and just ask you to peer with me into these few verses and just ask ourselves the question, is there a disconnect in our message today? Peter was very clear about what his belief was. Peter was very clear about the change in his life, and it started with the need. He is telling them, he's telling the Jewish leaders of what their need is. He is saying that, you know what, at the base of everything, their need is salvation. And I think that's a truism even today. We talk about a lot of things about the greatest need for a person's life is. Abraham Maslow years ago some of you may be fans. I'm not a fan. He wrote a whole hierarchy of needs. There's this whole pyramid down there by saying that in our humanity, this is what we need, talking about in a physical or in an emotional standpoint. What Peter is saying at the core of it, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, our, one of our greatest needs is salvation. Yes, you need oxygen. Yes, you need water. Yes, you need food. But when you breathe your last breath on this earth, 
It's not going to matter how much water you drank. It's not going to matter how much oxygen you had. The only question is, is are you saved? And Peter is saying, what made a difference in my life and what has changed me from now to the rest of my life? My need, your need, religious leaders, your need is salvation. Everyone needs salvation. That is what Peter is trying to say there in verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. Peter is wanting to remind them that there was a disconnect in their days. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders thought that it was a matter of all the activity and it was all of the actions. You come and you join a church and you come and you get baptized and you come to Sunday school and you come to Sunday morning service. Even if you want to be a super spiritual Christian, you come to Sunday night and you come to Wednesday night. And then if you want to be even awesomer, you can have a Bible and you can read your Bible every day and there's tears of your level of how good of a Christian you are. And Peter is saying, you know what? That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your faith in Jesus Christ. What makes you a Christian is that you are saved. You've been forgiven of your sins. That's why he says there in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. He wants to remind them, not only all of the people in Peter's days, not only all the religious leaders that are standing before him, and not only even us today, we need to know that our greatest need is salvation. We don't need new programs in the church. We don't need new carpet in the church. We don't need new paint in the church. We don't need a new church building, a new church location. We don't need more dynamic speakers or greater music. We don't need more trendy this or more contemporary that. We need people that know that people need Jesus. All that stuff comes. Yes, it's important in being able to reach people. Yes, it's important in having a safe place for people to come. Yes, it's important for people to understand the importance we put upon ministry and the importance we put on being able to communicate people the truth of Jesus Christ. But at the core of everything that we do as a church is to tell people their greatest need is a right relationship with Jesus. And that starts with our view of God. That starts with our view of man. Excuse me, that starts with our view of sin. We start to understand that, you know what, when people come in, they don't need trinkets. They don't need platitudes. They don't need to be stroked in their egos. They don't need to have their desires met. They don't need to feel all good about themselves. They don't need a great motivational speech. They don't need to to see us bending over backwards trying to make them happy and juggle all the right balls and build all the right balloons. They need to see a people that understand that my life has been changed because of Jesus. And I needed salvation and you needed salvation. There's a great disconnect in the world today where churches are not proclaiming and they're not teaching our need of Jesus. It's you need to be in a discipleship group and you need to do this and you need to go through this activity and you need to go through this performance and you need to go through this and this and this and this and you need to act this way and look this way and do this way. And brothers and sisters, at the core of it, Peter is coming there in verse 12 and he's looking at these religious leaders and he's going, you do not get it. You do not need more religion. You need more Jesus. There's a disconnect in this world today that says as long as you go to church, you're right with God. And you can come to church every day of your life and still be lost. Or you need to learn when to stand up and when to sit down. They forgot that it wasn't rules, it was relationship. That it wasn't a matter of self-sufficiency, it was a matter of desperation. Peter is coming to them and saying, you know what, there's a truth that I grasp in my life. It wasn't a matter of the synagogue I was a member of. It wasn't a matter of all the law testament laws that I kept. It was a matter of, have I been forgiven of my sins? 
And brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to understand that when it comes to our lives, that's the base question of what we're dealing with. Have I been forgiven of my sins? That changed everything for Peter. And that was a disconnect that they had in those days. And that's a disconnect that we have in our days. But then Peter goes on there in verse 12 that he continues to expand upon not only their need, but he also expands upon the source. He is saying, okay, so if I'm going to tell you that you need to be saved, and if I'm going to tell you that your greatest need is your salvation and your forgiveness of sins, then the question is going to follow up. Well, then how do I get that? What do I do with that? Can you, you remember Simon, Simon the magician? There later on in Acts, Simon the magician is watching Peter, and he's watching what Peter's doing, and he said, how do I get some of that? Can I go buy some of that? Can I get that on the shelf? I would love to. Uh, Greg was talking this morning in Sunday school about patience and how sometimes patience is such a, a discipline. <laughs> I would love it if they sold patience at Dollar General. <laughs> or if they had it on Amazon and it was on Prime. And so I could just have every two days, I could have a fresh load of patience coming to my house. Or, or a fresh load of contentment. I wish some of these things, some of these spiritual fruits were something that I could purchase, something that I could buy, something that I could get. But Peter says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not a matter that you go to church and buy salvation. That's called simony. That's what the Catholic Church was doing years ago. People were buying positions. People were buying what they thought forgiveness. He said, no, it's not a matter about buying your religion. It's not a matter of jumping through hoops to get your religion. He's saying, who is the source? He goes back up to verse 10 in Acts chapter four. And he said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying the source of our salvation is not in this world. It's not in this world and it's not in ourselves. We have too many people in this world today that start to think that we're our own answer. So you think medication is going to take care of it? You think therapy is going to take care of it? You think dealing and focusing on your emotions and your feelings are going to take care of it? The source of our hope and the source of our help and the source of our change in our life is not ourselves or this world. The source is Jesus Christ. He says back in verse 10, let it be known to all people by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then he adds whom you crucified because he's making the point. This guy changed my life, my salvation, my hope, my eternal security, the forgiveness of my sins came through Jesus. He says, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone. And then he says in verse 12, and there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is telling them there is only one source of salvation. That is Jesus Christ. We have a whole population today that are searching and they're looking for hope. They're looking for help. They're looking for means and ways to cope with the trouble in this world. And we can go all day long and offering all kinds of coping mechanisms behavioral modification systems. But until we understand the only source of our hope, the only source of our help, the only source of our security for eternity is in Jesus Christ. Peter says that's going to change. That's going to change what we do. That's going to change how you feel. That's going to change your emotions. That's going to change what you think. Go back to John chapter 14 and verse 6. Listen to what Jesus says there. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes it very clear. The source of salvation, the source of our hope, the source of what we have in this life is Jesus Christ. We sang it twice during this last Christmas season. You'd be fine with me if Greg sang every single Sunday. 
we have a Savior. And it's a song that just repeats and just reminds us that we do not have a Savior in pharmaceuticals. We do not have a Savior in politics. We do not have a Savior in government. We do not have a Savior in some type of cultural revolution. You don't have a Savior in CRT. You don't have a Savior in the next pundit. You don't have a Savior in a preacher. You don't have a Savior in a worship leader. You don't have a Savior in a Sunday school teacher. You don't have a Savior in money. You don't have a Savior in your performance. You don't have a Savior in your possessions. You have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, so many times in this world, we are telling the world that our Savior Savior is in our possessions. Our Savior is in our accomplishments. Our Savior is in our performance or in our personification that we put on in front of other people. Peter is standing before him. And Peter says, the difference that my life is is because I needed saving and Jesus saved me. Sometimes we try to complicate it. Sometimes we try to think, well, it's not that simple. There has to be more to it than that. Why? Why does there have to be more to it than that? Some of the greatest joys in our lives are some of the most simple things. I think we're in a couple weeks, maybe a month away. Mike is getting ready to start walking. The other day, he, he took two steps, and mom was like, oh, he's walking. I'm like, that's two steps. <laughs> that's not, that's not, we're not going to qualify that yet. When we get across the living room without a head plant, then maybe we'll talk about it. But we're close, and those simple things, right? Those simple things that you get to see, and you're like, that's special. Those are things that you cannot buy. Those are things that you cannot get from a store. Those are things that you cannot reproduce or remanufacture. Those are the things that remind us that simple things are sometimes the most precious things. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we get so busy in our humanity. We get so busy in our busyness. We get so busy in, in, in trying to keep up with the Joneses that we forget to just tell people of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So people say, what is the, what is the difference? What is the thing that makes you different? I needed saved and Jesus saved me. Why does it have to be more difficult? Maybe it's because we've been more programmed to reach for the pleasure of man than the pleasure of God. Maybe it's because we're not content with the things of God because we're seeking the things of this world. Maybe, maybe it's because we don't really understand that we needed saving and maybe we really don't understand what being saved means. See, there's a process. <clears throat> there's a process that he talks about in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there if you'd like to. But Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about this process of what it means to be saved. So I put there in your notes because if you ask the question or if you're posed with the question of, well, what is the process? Well, then what does this salvation look like? Peter alludes to it and says, hey, there's, no, there's salvation in no one else apart from the name of Jesus Christ. He talks about being saved, but then Romans chapter 10 gives us this picture of what it looks like to be saved. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, listen to what Paul writes. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying that there's a process to being saved. What does it begin with? You'll see this in, our, in the tracts that we give out as a church that are personalized. You'll see it in other things. It's just simple. It's the ABCs. You admit 
that you need a savior. You admit that you're a sinner. You admit that the sin in your life causes a separation between you and God. You admit that you cannot save yourself. You admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. You admit that you need a savior. And then B is believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that your savior has come, that God has sent your savior to you. You believe in what Jesus has done. You believe in the death, the burial, the resurrection. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the hope of that salvation. And then that comes back to C, confess. You confess I'm a sinner in need of a savior. You confess that Jesus Christ came and died and was raised to save you from your sins. And you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life. You confess him as the Lord of your life. And you say, well, is that just a one-time thing? Oh, I wish it was a one-time thing. It's a daily. Every day you wake up and say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. What does that look like, Spence? That means every day you wake up and say, all right, you're the boss. What do you want me to do? I've got this superintendent right now that's a super nice guy. And he'll call me up and say, well, what are you doing today? I'm working for you today. That's what I'm doing today. Or he'll call me up and say, well, I've got this going on. Do you have time? I have time because I work for you. You know, sometimes we live in this day and age that, you know, you, you have some bosses that they never let you do anything. They always got the thumb on you. But then I, right now I'm in this season where I've got another boss and it's like, hey, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to impose upon you. And I'm sitting back going, I work for you. And every single morning we wake up and we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I live for you. Jesus, I serve you. Jesus, I obey you. Jesus, I follow you. Jesus, I have committed my life to you because you gave your life for me. Jesus, I'm going to wake up today and say, what am I supposed to do for you today? We confess him as the Lord of our lives. So go back to Acts chapter four. So Peter is coming in and he's looking and he is saying, all right, you religious leaders, you're asking me, <clears throat> you're asking me, it says back up there in verse seven, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're saying, all right, Peter, you give us an explanation. You tell us what is the difference in your life. So Peter tells them, I realize I needed a savior. Jesus saved me. This is how I got saved. And this has changed everything. And then he discusses their faith. He discusses their faith. Notice he says there in verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Then he goes on in verse 13 and, and Luke writes, he says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I don't know about you, but I look at this passage and I ask myself, when I leave the house in the morning, when the people I come in contact with all throughout the day, do they look at Spence and go, you know what? He's been with Jesus today. Sadly, humbly, regrettably, I don't think that's what people see out of me every day. They see more of my humanity and my sinfulness. They see more of my attitude and my pride and my arrogance. They see more of my assumptions that I know better. They see more of my self-sufficiency than they do of my Savior. But Peter is looking at these religious leaders. Now, these religious leaders, you remember who they were? They were the ones that incited 
Pilate and the rest of the Roman government to crucify Jesus. These were the same Jewish leaders, religious leaders that had cast people out of the synagogue. These were the guys that held the keys to determine your fate in the community. Peter's looking at these people and saying, I understand the last guy that stood up that took a stand, you killed, you crucified. I understand these things are possible. I understand that you can throw me out of the synagogue, you can blackball me, you can ostracize me, you can kick me out of the community. I realize that you have the power in a cultural sense to ruin my life. But I'm going to tell you, my faith is not built upon this culture. My faith is not built upon this society. My faith is not built upon the pleasure or the assumptions or the opinions of man. My faith is built upon Jesus Christ. So what did it do? It changed priorities. Because look at verse 13. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they weren't educated. They were common men, but they were astonished. And the only explanation they had was they had been with Jesus. Why? Because it changed their priorities. <clears throat> Pull your toes in for a second. Your devotions dictate your disciplines. Maybe if that's not clear enough, your God's Set your calendar. We're living in a day and age that people want to say, oh, no, I'm right with Jesus. But Jesus and the kingdom and the church come after everything else. And next thing you know, you're saying, I can't be at church because I've got this activity. I can't be at church because I have this commitment. I can't be at church because I have this obligation. I can't be at church because I have that responsibility. Instead of looking around and saying, you know what? I've got church, so that responsibility is going to have to change. I've got church, so that opportunity is going to have to be different. I've got church, so that's going to have to be different. You may say, well, Spence, isn't that legalistic? Jesus was legalistic. Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't going to compromise on truth. Jesus wasn't going to compromise on faithfulness. Jesus wasn't going to compromise on taking a stand for what was right and what was wrong. Jesus said, this is it. Either believe it and follow it or don't. And brothers and sisters, devotions dictate disciplines. Devotions dictate what we do in the mornings. When you wake up, either you are going to do what you want to do, or you're going to do what Jesus wants you to do. That's a discipline. Reading your Bible, praying, participation in the ministry of the church, all these things are disciplines, and your devotions dictate your disciplines. So if you are more devoted to yourself than you are to your relationship with God, then that's going to be seen in the disciplines that you live in your daily life. And it changed priorities. Peter and all the disciples, they had a previous profession. They had a previous vocation. And now all they're doing is they're going around and they're telling people about Jesus. And you're going, well, how did they eat? Well, if you read in the book of Acts, people started selling possessions. People started giving up things so that way other people can eat. There was this whole communal effort that they realized, hey, we want you to keep telling people about Jesus, so we'll make sure that you don't go without a meal. It changed their priorities. It changed people. Because it changed their priorities, it changed people. And I have to ask myself the question. Is the reason we don't see more exchanged people in this community is because our priorities are out of whack? Is the reason why I don't see more changed people in my immediately, immediate circle of influence, my immediate circle of interaction is because my priorities are out of whack? 
So I think there's something that followed. When their priorities changed, people changed. Now it happens on a personal level. When you, when you change, when there's something that you decide to do, all of a sudden your priorities change. You go through a weight loss. You go through some type of academic discipline. You want, you, you want to go to a new job or you, or you get married or there's some change in your relationship, change, some change in your lifestyle. When you change, a lot of times your priorities change. There are things that matter to me now, like don't run out of diapers. I mean, there's things that priorities now that weren't priorities of mine 25 years ago. Just quite frankly, those things just really didn't matter. I didn't care whether we had a bottle or not. I didn't care whether we had baby wives or not. But those priorities then change. But on the flip side, when your priorities change, spiritually speaking, people change. So when you fall in love with Jesus, and all you can do is talk about Jesus, people change because they see the difference in you. Peter's coming in and he's saying, here's the disconnect. Here's the disconnect, you religious leaders. You've missed Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I wonder how many times in the church today, people come in these doors and they see the presentation. They're a part of the ministry. But do they see Jesus? Do they see Jesus from us personally? Do they see Jesus from us corporately? So put there in the bottom of your notes, just a way of application. Just a couple of reminders when it comes to change. Do we need a change as a church? Do you need a change personally? I'll just give you a couple of things and just asking yourselves, is there a disconnect in what I think and what I say? Is there a disconnect in what I mean and what people see? Is there a disconnect between who I am in here and who I am out there? Do we need a change? I'll give you just three things to... Keep in mind, and then we'll bring this thing to a close. God's justice is not social. I say, well, Spence, why do, you, why do you put it like that? Because Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that there's a, kind, a point in time that we'll all stand before God and we'll all give an account. And it's not going to be based upon the social justice that so prevails our community and our, uh, the topics of conversation today. God's justice is righteousness. And you and I will be judged, not because of the color of our skin, not because of where we are born, not because of our demographics, not because of our education, not because of our uh, abilities when it comes to financial. We will be judged on whether we have a right relationship with Jesus Christ or not. He will not care about your last name. He will not care about how hard you worked. He will not care about how much money you gave. He will not care about all the things that man cares about. His justice is righteous. And when we stand before God one day, the only thing that's going to matter is, is are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you saved or are you lost? See, right now we're bombarded with this narrative. That's a matter of the color of your skin. It's a matter of your behavior. It's a matter of your beliefs. It's a matter of your attitudes. It's a matter of your history. It's a matter of what kind of people you have been a part of. And I'm just telling you that the day is going to come that God is not going to be grading on the social justice curve. He is grading on the justice of righteousness. <clears throat> Secondly, humanity needs more than, I'm sorry, humanity's needs are more than physical. What this world around us doesn't need more social programs. 
It doesn't need more food. It doesn't need more clothing. It doesn't need more government. It doesn't need more interaction. It doesn't need more of the things that we are trying to do to assuage our need for Jesus Christ. Humanity's needs are a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that we need to be engaged in reaching the community. Now, I realize that we need to be engaged in reaching people with the love of Jesus Christ. But as we reach them, let's make sure we know what we are reaching them with. Are we reaching them with Jesus? Or are we reaching them with cope? Are we reaching them with Jesus? Or are we reaching them with a false assurance? Are we reaching with them with Jesus? Or reaching them with the idea that, hey, you just check this box, you just perform like this, and things will be different. You see, Peter understood that it wasn't his performance, it was his passion. Sometimes in the world today, you and I start to think that's about our performance. We're judged upon our performance. We're judged upon our ability to perform whatever task is before us. And Peter says, the difference it made in me is I was passionate about Jesus and that changed everything, which is where you see in number three, changed people, change people. Changed people, change people. So as we think about this last week, as you think about this week coming up, as you think about your life, let me ask you the question. Are you changing people? Well, Spence, I'm not the one that does the saving. I understand you're not the one that does the saving. I didn't say, are you saving people? Well, you know, that's really up to the providence of God. You know, that's really up to the sovereignty of God, what God wants to do. I understand that God is God. I'm not trying to say you are God. What I'm trying to say is, is by your actions, you are influencing, witnessing, conveying a message to people. Are you that young man on the football bus just throwing that money out? trying to make an effort, but you're not connecting the dots. Because there's a lot of people outside in this world that need Jesus. They've tried everything else in this world, but nothing else is satisfied. And they're looking for hope and help in this world. And church, they need people that are changed people by the blood of Jesus Christ that will come to them and tell them how they might be saved. But what it begins with is you and I in this room understanding that we have been changed for a reason. We've been changed for a purpose. We've been changed for a calling. We have been changed for a mission. So I ask you, have you been changed? Do you know that you are saved? Do you know where your eternity stands. And if you say, Spence, I do. I'm saved. I'm changed. Let me ask you, are you changing others? Bow your heads with me.